Welcome to Shekinah International Podcast. Our ministry reflects the five-fold ministry model Apostle Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Our podcast features leaders from multiple churches who are passionate about equipping Christians just like you to walk in purity and power, fulfilling your God-given purpose. God wants to do great exploits through you, so enjoy today's podcast. I took a portion of a teaching I did previously called Legislative Morality and just tweaked it a little bit, cleaned it up a little bit because it's a similar concept. And you all are familiar with the story of the promised land, how the Israelites come out, right, and what happens there and how the plagues come on the Pharaoh because he didn't want to let them go and how that parallels our coming out of the world into the Christian lifestyle and some of the things that have to happen, you know, before we're able to get out, right? Um, now the Pharaoh chases him through the desert, right? And sometimes when you get out of bondage and you've gotten saved, and even though God's protecting you, eventually he calls you to step out, to leave the place of comfort. So they finally are able to leave the place of comfort. The Pharaoh agrees he's miserable enough to let him go. And they get out in that desert and he changes his mind midstream, decides to pursue him. <laughs> okay. They get to that river, that bat place of baptism, if you will. It symbolizes baptism, right? They go through their desert place, leaning on their lover. They get to the waters of baptism, if you will, and the Lord does a miraculous thing in them, just like he does in us and makes them a new creation. And they walk right through on dry land. And in Judges 2, 1 through 4, it says, I brought you up out of Egypt. And led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. Referring specifically to, really, back, all the way back to Abraham. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make covenant with the people of this land. Turn to your neighbor and say, we shall not make covenant with the people of this land. Okay. And there's a good reason. And there's a secondary piece to this, okay? The reason is we don't make covenant with the people of the land is because it actually destroys us. It destroys us. It sets us up for death and, and trouble and persecution, unnecessary persecution that doesn't result in victory but revol results in death and problems, okay? It pulls us out of God's bed best for us, really, and opens us up to all kinds of demonic onslaught. The second piece of that, it says, you shall not make covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Turn to your neighbor and say, you shall. You altar breaker, you. That's right. So everywhere we go, when we get into our promised land, when the Lord takes us out of Egypt and has taken us into this new land, you're an altar breaker. That's what you're made to do. Ed once prophesied over me, you're a wrecking ball, Stephanie. I said, good, thank God. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I go in and I break down, Jeremiah 1.10. I uproot, I tear down, and I overthrow altars. That's what I do. Things that do not align with the Lord in the spirit, that is what we do. We deal with it. And then what does it say? Just like we sang today. Then we build and we plant. So what the church has been really good at is we're good at tearing stuff down. We're not good at building and planting. So what it does is it creates a void or a vacuum in the spirit, and then the enemy comes right back in and builds something even worse. 
What does it say? If you cast a demon out of something and you don't fill, the person doesn't get filled, what happens? Comes back seven times. Mm -mm -mm. No, Jesus, no thank you. If you do not have the vision, and that's why that song was so awesome today, if God has not granted you a blueprint or a vision to fill it or partnered you with someone who has a blueprint or a vision to fill what it is that he, you feel called to break down, don't do it because you're actually going to cause a bigger problem, right? So I don't know why. I'm seeing the upper room. You remember when Jesus told them, wait, wait, wait in Jerusalem until the power has come. The Holy Spirit has come upon you. You have to wait for that grace of Holy Spirit to come upon you to give you the vision of his heart for what's supposed to replace the thing that you're tearing down before you go in and tear it down. Otherwise, it actually causes more problems. You know, we're pioneers. I mean, that's what Americans are, right? We're going to the Wild West. We're going to pioneer. We're going to do something new. We're innovators. We're industrious people. So we love this idea of, you know, kind of, bulldozing and plowing things out and making something new. But we've got to have a vision for the new, and we've got to have unity around the vision for something new. Amen? So it goes on in Judges 2, 2 through 5, and it says, For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, Altar breaker. But, he says, you disobeyed my command. And then he asks him, why did you do this? So now I declare I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a constant temptation to you. Verse 4 goes on to say, when the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called that place Bokim, which means the place of weeping. And they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. And have you ever had a situation or a season of life where the Lord told you to stop something and you're like, eh, I'm going to toy around with this a little bit longer. I'm not quite ready to give that up. And it came back and literally punched you in the face. Okay? Literally punched you in the face. Like, you're, whoa, I was not expecting that. Father, forgive me. I am doing an about face and going in the direction that you've called me to. Right? Have you been there? I've been there. And I'm like, Jesus. You only do that once or twice. You take a couple hard knocks and you're like, oh, I, I, I'm going to say, sir, yes, sir. I'm going to turn real quick because I don't want to go through that again. Amen? And I think sometimes, you know, when we're younger Christians, the enemy tries to convince us like we're missing out on something. We aren't missing out on anything. No. Everything God says do not do, it's because he created us not to do those things because they actually decay, destroy, and ruin the glory that you carry. And they stop up and taint, really, the purity of your heart, the sanity and clarity of your mind, and your ability to fulfill who it is he's called you to be, right? So, all that said, okay, this is the District of Christ part I'm going to tell you. All right, so he says he's going to leave these ones in the land, right? It says, these are the nations that the Lord, in Joshua 3, 1 through 5, continuing on, left in the land, for what purpose? To test those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. Okay? He did this to teach warfare to the generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. 
These are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers. Isn't it interesting that there's five Philistine rulers? Okay, so we talk a lot about fivefold ministry. Wherever there's a true, there's a false. Okay, the Philistines had five. We'll get into that, and that's a whole other teaching. The Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, living in Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. If you look at this picture, this is really kind of a fun picture. This is the many faces of Jezebel. People don't even know this. Okay, so in Babylon, she was called Ishtar. In Phoenicia, she was called Asherah. In Egypt, she was called Isis. In Greece, she was called Artemis. In Greece, excuse me, in Greece, she was also called Athena. In Rome, she was called Minerva. Didn't know that one. In the United States, she's called the Columbia, the District of Columbia. Literally the district of Jezebel. And we wonder why we're having so many problems in our nation. All right. So this is important, right? They get into the land and God says basically, well, you dabbled a little bit, right? So what's the consequence? The consequence is I'm going to leave these ites in there for you. And they cry and they call it Bokim and they're like, oh, I don't want to fight in war the rest of my life. Well, you wouldn't have had to if you hadn't dabbled. But when you dabbled, the Lord said, okay. They actually need these ites there. They need the continued warfare in their life, the continued pressure of having to stand up. Why? Why? Come on, somebody. This gets me excited. Do you not know that you will judge the angels? How much more than the things in this life? There were two reasons, the Lord said, in Judges 3, 1 through 3. Number one, to train the next generation. Turn to your neighbor and say, my job is to train the next generation. So they can be one year younger than you. They can be saved a year later than you. That's the next generation. I have men and women that are older than me that I'm actually discipling only because I've been in the Lord longer or the specific call that God has on my life. Generations of salvation, right? But also literal generations like your kids, younger people, okay? In Judges 3, 1 through 3, it says, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. Right? So you've got this whole awesome warrior, powerful, skilled army that comes in, and they tear it up. They take the lands, they win, they get the victory, they break down all the altars, but then they have all these kids, and the kids are kind of soft. Right? So the Lord left the ites in the land so that they would have to learn how to become skillful warriors. Because as long as we're here on earth, we have a very real enemy, and we are in a war. The moment you accept Jesus Christ... As your Lord and Savior, you got a target on your back. And that's not a bad thing because you were created for this. And greater is he that is in you than he who's in the world. And you were made to be a victor. Amen? It says he did this to teach warfare to the generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. How are you going to get battle experience if there's no battle? Okay, so even what we're going through in our nation, it is uncomfortable, it is horrible, there's a lot of stuff going on, but it is such an awesome opportunity for us to learn how to refer to our true fact checker, the word of God, and test ourselves to see where we're at in our love walk, in our level of maturity, how much of Christ's glory actually dwells in us and whether or not we're aligned and plumbed with what his word says and not the culture, Amen. It's so, so good for us. So reason number two is to test the hearts of the people, right? 
in Judges 3, it goes on, 4 and 5, it says, these people were left to test the Israelites to see this. So they were left to teach warfare to the next generation, but then to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands of the Lord their God had given them through their ancestors and Moses. So without opposition, you don't really know whether or not you truly believe something. Have you ever been there? You're under your mom's roof, your dad's roof, you're in a church, you're going every week, and you're like, yeah, I believe that, yeah, I believe that, yeah, I believe that. But then you get to your workplace, and you've got to apply the principle that you learned. Maybe it was healing, I don't know, right? But you're like, um, uh, I don't know what to do. Yeah, so it's here, it's not here, right? So you've got your own war you've got to win right now. Okay, I have to remember what I learned. Do I believe it? Yes, I do. Okay, what do I do? I have to step out in faith and be willing to look weird and be uncomfortable. I actually have to walk this out, Right? And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because it gives you an opportunity to become all the fullness of who he's created you to be. Right? It's beautiful. All right. You've heard it said, you can't legislate morality. Anybody heard that besides me? Okay. I got lots of friends. Okay. You can't legislate morality. One of my very best friends told me this. I had a four to five hour discussion with this man. I said, so-and-so, I love you. But all legislation is legislating morality. You're either setting the bar here saying this is okay, or you're setting the bar here saying this is okay. All legislation, all policy, all culture and values that we set, whether they're in our personal lives, they're in our fam families. With, like in this church, we have values. That sets the moral standard for our gathering. It says, this is where we're headed. This is the target. This is the mark we're aiming at, okay? In the nation, every law that's passed, every law that's passed sets some kind of moral standard. And it either, for us as Christians, it either aligns or it, or it doesn't. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So even at work, right? Well, we'll get into that in a little bit. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. All right. So 1 Timothy 1.9, it says, we know that the law is good. And this is referring to the Ten Commandments. If one uses it properly, turn your neighbor and say, the law is good, but you got to use it properly. And then you talk, tell them back, say, I'm proper. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. So turn your neighbor and say, the law ain't for you because you're righteous. That's right. It's not for you. It's not for me because we're made righteous in Christ, right? But it's for lawbreakers. It's for rebels. It's for the ungodly. It's for the sinful. It's for the unholy and the irreligious. So it's people that don't have religion, don't have a moral standard, don't have God in their lives, okay? Father God, Yahweh, yud heh vav heh the true, one true God, Jesus Christ. And, it, and it's not meant to be demeaning. That I don't want you to hear me, okay? Hear the heart of God in this. That's not meant to be demeaning. Lawbreakers need moral laws in place to protect them from harm because they actually don't have a moral standard. They don't have a fact checker or a rule book of life on how to be safe and how to be blessed and how to be made whole. So lawbreakers and ungodly people and sinful people and irreligious people, they have to have the law and moral standards put in place because they actually don't have a moral standard themselves. They just think everything's good. So putting a moral standard in place for them is actually the loving thing to do to protect them 
prior to them having understanding. Does that make sense? Okay. We're going to talk a little bit about the judges. We've talked about this before, but I want to say this again because this is important. There was a season of judges and there was a season of kings, okay? You're all familiar with Deborah. Brent does such a great job with our Deborah's Arise conference. He talks about her every couple years when we do that. And um, you know that she judged well. She was a judge. She was basically a, a, a prophet and uh, helped to defeat the Syrians with Jael. Barak had come to her and um, asked her to go to war with him. He said, yes. She heard from the Lord. She went before the Lord, got a word. Yes, I'm going to go. They went to war, and they had victory. So the model at that time, same with Gideon, okay? The Lord uses Gideon, fills him with the courage, calls him a mighty man of valor, and uses him to defeat the Midianites, right? Even amidst all of his weaknesses, he still comes to victory because he went before the Lord to get wisdom and understanding on how to lead and what to do and where to go. And God never contradicts his word. So this was how they were operating, right? In the beginning, it's like God wanted people to speak directly with him. So he worked with these judges. He worked through these judges. And all the other nations had kings. And the people were either blessed or they suffered depending on the maturity level of the king that was over them. We'll talk about that later. So God would choose a prophet or a judge to speak directly to all the people rather than himself, right? Because everybody's at different places. Not everybody's there. Rather than have a king rule over them. And as they obeyed the voice of the Lord, the prophets and the prophets, they were successful in all their endeavors. So you got Deborah and Gideon are kind of examples of that. But there comes a time, Samuel, for those of you who don't know, Samuel was the last judge, okay, or the last prophet. Samuel was the son of Hannah. You remember Hannah, the story of Hannah, how she wanted a son and she couldn't have a son and her husband's other wife had all these kids and she was taunting her and how difficult that was for her. Hannah's name means joy. She goes to the priest Eli and, you know, is really actually not even going to the priest. She's going to the temple and she's crying out before the Lord, bawling and crying. And the priest at that time was where he was, so much so um, he really wasn't in touch with the spirit and he thought she was drunk. Are you drunk? Like if you're showing that much emotion, you got to be on something. Right? You ever encountered that religious spirit? But the Lord grants Hannah a child. He tells Eli, figures out what's going on. She says, no, I'm not drunk. You know, tells him the situation. He says, you'll have, a, you'll have a son. So she commits this son to the Lord. She says, Lord, if you give me the son, you know, I'll, I'll give him to you. I will give him to you all the days. And also, you know, he will serve you all the days of your life. So she brings him back to the temple after she weans him off. And he goes to this temple with Eli, the priest, and his two disobedient, sinful sons and grows up in this environment, it really a religious environment where they weren't living to the moral standard or upholding the moral standard. And I think sometimes even looking at our nation, we get a little panicky and we think, there's no moral standard. What's going to happen in the next generations? It's going to hell in a handbasket. But some of the most powerful leaders in the world come out from under the most depraved parents because they know better than anybody what having no moral standard results in. They're painfully aware of the consequences of the sins 
of the fathers and the mothers in their life. So I just want to encourage you with that. It's not hopeless. God always has a king. I believe King Asa. Was it King Asa? One of Ahab's sons. No, um, I'm sorry, Manasseh's sons. One of Manasseh's sons was that Asa. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think you're right. It's Josiah, yep. But in 1 Samuel 7, 15 through 17, Samuel continued, it says, as Israel's leader until all of his days for all of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mitzvah, judging Israel in all of those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he held court for Israel. Okay, so he's not only being sent on assignments to go out and be a blessing and bring healing and bring, you know, words of knowledge and tell the Israelites what to do and where to war and all that, but he's also holding court. He's judging. Okay, this is right, this is wrong. You know, this is of God, this is of not. You know, this person's lying, this person's telling the truth. This is God's decision on the matter, right? And when I read this this morning, it says, and he built an altar there in his hometown for the Lord. So he had built an altar, like we're building an altar here in our hometown. And I was reading this this morning, I thought, hmm, I remember this, that he had a thriving ministry, if you're modernized this. He had a thriving ministry. He was going to and fro. Personally, he was blessed, and the nation was blessed as a result of his obedience. But in 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 21, it says, this is what the Israelites said to him. Samuel, you're old, and your sons don't follow your ways. So he fell into the same sin that Eli fell into. Eli didn't know how to disciple his sons, and he couldn't teach Samuel how to do it because he wasn't successful in it, so Samuel had no example. So he's out busy doing all this ministry, blessing the nation, helping the nation, but his kids at home are hurting. And I thought, whew. So just remember this piece, okay? We're going to talk about this again later. That family aspect is one of the spheres that we're responsible for. We have our personal calling, and then we've got our calling to our family is secondary. Then it goes on in 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20. And it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. So Samuel kind of argues with him. He says, don't do this. This is what's going to happen if you do this. These kings are going to rule over you. They're going to take all your money. They're going to tax you. They're going to take your sheep. They're going to take your women. They're going to force you to go for war. You're not always going to win the war because they're not necessarily seeking the Lord. And he tells them all these consequences and goes on and on and on and on. But they say back to him, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. It was like they shut their ears. They said, we don't want to listen to the prophets anymore. Does that sound familiar? That's the season we're in right now. We don't want to listen to the prophets anymore, these false prophets. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. It sounded good. It looked good. They looked happy, right? With a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. What was it really about? They didn't want to fight. I'm tired of fighting. Everybody gets tired of fighting. But this is what you were made for. I'm tired of hurting. Everybody gets tired of hurting. But this is what you were made for. I'm tired of the accusations. Everybody gets tired of the accusations. But this is what you were made for. That 
prophetic word Laura brought today about Nehemiah, Sanballat, Gershom, and Tobias. If someone's coming against you, it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong, sweetheart. It means you're right on target. Sometimes it's because of your own behavior, okay? If you've got multiple people that love you and care about you saying the same thing, you need to humble yourself and listen. But if you're doing a great work and you've got people around you that love you and they're partnering with you for it and the kingdom is being advanced and you're seeing that fruit and you've got some people coming at you hardcore, just out of the blue trying to tear you down, frankly, you're right where you're supposed to be and you're right on target. You are right on target. They didn't want to fight the battle. Jake used to say his favorite song was, this is how I fight my battles. And he'd do this little wiggle dance and we'd all giggle. Because he'd, yeah, yeah, he'd, you know, his little belly. Oh, he was so cute. He's so cute when he did it. And Lyra knows what I'm talking about. I just used to get the giggles because he was serious. He understood. He came out of a life where he was not stewarded well as a child, frankly. So he understood what depravity did to people and the brokenness and the fracturing that brought to his soul. So he understood he had to fight to get out of that life. He had to fight to change. He had to fight to be all that God called him to be. And that, that was worth fighting for because he didn't want that for Carrington. He didn't want that for the other people in his life. He understood the cost. So I was reading through this and I thought, you know, what, what makes God weep? We know Jesus only wept once when Lazarus died, right? But I thought, what makes God weep? And I wondered. In Judges 8.33, it tells us, no sooner than Gideon had died, the Israelites prostituted themselves again to the Baal. It was that same root of they wanted someone else to fight their battle for them. As long as Gideon was there, the judge was there, and he was fighting it for them, they were good. But they didn't want to fight it themselves. Right? So as long as they had a strong leader, they were good to go. And I think it's a subtle thing. And I, honestly, I never saw it until this morning. I'd never seen it before. But I have moments like that. Where it's like, Lord, I don't want to fight. I want to lay on my couch, drink my Slurpee, have 17 cups of coffee, and Netflix for four days. Okay? Do you ever feel that way sometimes? Okay, he messes with you, right? But you were made for battle. And sometimes the win is just getting your legs out of bed. Holy Spirit, where do you want me to go? And getting your behind there and then persevering so that the character of Christ can be developed in you. And it doesn't feel good on your flesh and it doesn't feel good on your emotions and it doesn't feel good on your mind. But you're going from faith to faith and glory to glory every time you do it. And you look more like Jesus. It's almost like there was a cycle. As long as the judges were upholding the standard, the people would obey. As soon as they did not have a moral standard in place, and this is why legislating morality is so important, they returned to the previous sins that resulted in judgment on the entire nation. It's such a mirror of what's going on in our nation right now. Yeah. So I thought that probably makes God's heart weep, you know? And it goes on to say, so, so 1 Samuel, going back to Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 8, I thought this probably makes God's heart, you know, makes God weep. 
Listen to all the listen to all listen to all the people. Well, all the people are saying to you, he said to Samuel, "It's not you that they have rejected; it's me as their king." So, anytime you've obeyed the Lord, and someone's not able to receive it, and you've delivered it in love, it's not you they're rejecting; it's him. And frankly, they need more prayer than they've ever gotten before. They need more prayer. Those individuals need more prayer. Because there's some hurt, some wound, some struggle in them that's causing them, some lie and deception that's causing them to stiff arm God and say, I don't want you or your truth or your love or your way, right? The people rejected a personal relationship with God and they wanted others to tell them what was right and what was wrong. So they could just float through life on the lazy river instead of seeking God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The scripture tells us it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. But it's the glory of men to seek it out. One of our greatest privileges is the adventure of getting to know who God is and who he created us to be. They didn't understand the honor and the privilege nor the joy of seeking out the treasures of God's heart. And when, really, when we first get saved, we have this insatiable hunger and thirst for him. We're so excited. We're so overwhelmed by his goodness to us. There's a supernatural grace on us when we first get saved. We can't get enough of the word. We can't get enough of the worship. We can't get enough of the people. And then the battles start to come. And the enemy tries to put us in a cycle where, quite frankly, we start to say, ooh, that little voice comes. You don't need to battle. Stay home. When David didn't go to battle, that's when he got with Bathsheba. He got busy peering his eyes on something he shouldn't have been looking at. Took that little ewe lamb to himself, somebody else's wife. He was supposed to be out to battle. He was supposed to be battling for his destiny, for his country, for Jerusalem, for Zion. But he got, that's when the enemy comes, when we stop being willing to go to battle. Isn't that interesting? All right. I want to encourage you because this is kind of heavy, so I put this in the middle. <laughs> James Nesbitt made this quite a while ago. It's a beautiful image of the transformation that we experience in Christ, and he says there's justice in the waters. There is an answer, and it's true justice. The scripture tells us to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. People, I went and did a prophetic roundtable over in Grand Rapids. Um, gosh, I don't know when it was, early this month, whatever day I got back from D.C. I had that the next day. And there were probably 12 prophets and apostles there and They'd asked me to kind of share some things from D.C. and some things on how we run things here with the women of glory. So I did that, and one woman turned to me, and she said, how do you keep at it? Because I think she saw the joy, right? Do you ever get around somebody with joy, and you're like, man, they got a secret I need, right? <laughs> they're still smiling, and I know what's going on in their life, and they're still full of joy. they got something I need. And she said, how do you do it? And I, this is... This is what I told her. I said, I pray in the spirit all the time. I probably look like a crazy person because I brush my teeth. 
I'm praying in the spirit while I'm doing my hair. I'm praying in the spirit while I'm in the car. I'm praying in the spirit while I'm making dinner. I'm praying in the spirit while I'm doing my dishes. And sometimes I'm just having conversations with God, you know. But I'm praying in the spirit all the time. Why? Because it's perfect prayer. The scripture tells us that when we pray in the spirit, it actually builds up our edifice in the Greek, our body, our physical body, but it also builds up our spirit, man or woman, and that it's perfect prayer. It's perfect prayer. Holy Spirit knows. It says Jesus continually makes intercession for us, but Holy Spirit lives in us, right? He lives in us. They're all one. So they live in us. They know what my body needs. They know what my mind needs. They know where I'm lying to myself, where I'm trying to deceive myself, where I'm trying to avoid an issue, where I'm having moments and I don't want to go to war on something. They know what it's going to take to get me out of that bed. They know what it's going to take to get me to continue to fight that fight, good fight of faith. Right? So when I pray in the spirit, I'm bypassing my mind and my emotions and my ideas and my agenda. And I'm saying, Lord, I'm yours. I'm getting me out of the way so that I can pray perfect prayer so he can have his way. And then all of a sudden I'll be in a meeting and something comes out of my mouth. I'm like, well, that was definitely Jesus because that is not even what I was thinking. Right? But I prepared my spirit, woman. Right? The spirit of God in me. So that's just a little fun tidbit. I don't know. That's a freebie. So the crust or the kind of the main thing I wanted to talk about today is... um, as I was having this discussion with someone close to me that I dearly love, realizing I haven't ever taught on this idea of the importance of legislating morality, I started to talk to the Lord about why is this so important and how does this work and how do we teach this in a way that's helpful and not hurtful, okay? So turn to your neighbor and say, this is to help you, not condemn you. We love you just where you're at. Okay, and this is a process, okay? So this doesn't happen overnight. I don't want you to listen to what I'm saying today and then be like, oh my gosh, I totally don't do that. I'm such a horrible person. I'm going to hell. You're not, okay? If you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are going to heaven for sure. You will be with the Lord to be separate from the bodies to be present with him. And you're just in process, and that's okay. But it is important in this era, in this new era, that Christians, again, begin to equip our children and begin to be equipped with the reality of how our spiritual maturity, our personal spiritual maturity, affects the world. Okay? So the Lord kind of broke it down for me in three levels. Level one. You see that cute little person there? It's generic. It can be a boy or a girl. Right? We have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, we're not going into the gender argument. I'm just saying I didn't give it hair because I didn't want the guys to feel left out. I didn't give it a skirt because I didn't, you know. All right. Girls wear pants too, at least in America. All right. So (laughs) level one, you've got your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of everything, and it's the foundation out of which all of your maturity comes, right? Um, if that foundation isn't solid, if your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not solid, when you go into family life, it will begin to manifest because the pressure increases in the family. You've got other people that you have to love and live sacrificially for according to the word of God, and it will increase. The pressure on you increases with each level, okay? So level two, you've got the familial model or the family dynamic, and modeling discipleship within the family. There's more pressure when you have to model your personal walk with Christ for others 
because people are watching you all the time. And not only are they watching you, but they put a demand on your gift. Mom, 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 honey, oh, honey, 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 mom, mom, mom. Did you, did you, did you, did you? Okay. There's a demand. Dad, 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 dad. Honey, 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 could you, could you, could you, could you? Did you see my list? Right? Okay. So at the family level, there's a demand put on the gift. Every level, the demand increases some more, so you need more grace. That's why, listen, enjoy the jingle of being single. I'm just saying. Okay? Because it's a glorious season to be able to get your foundation right with the Lord. Before you move on up into the, you know, pressure levels of two and three in the family dynamic and in the world, okay? I don't know where that came from. Jingle of the single, whatever. You know I love you. So you... So the third level, okay, so you've got this personal relationship and your personal walk with the Lord. That's level one. You've got the family dynamic and modeling discipleship within your family. That's level two. Pressure increases. Third level, even more pressure, okay? You have level three, which is your sphere of influence. It can be your vocation. It can be within your neighborhood. It can be a political position you hold. It can be your individual vote as a citizen. It can be policies that you set up or values that you help to set up on a team for a specific area. All of those things are opportunities for you to legislate the morality of God that will protect individuals and keep them safe, especially those who are lawless or ungodly or irreligious because they don't know the Lord. So for them, it's no holds bar. Everything's okay. Woohoo! It's a party. Okay? But they don't realize that when they're operating that way, they're actually harming the people around them. So those of us with, with God in our hearts, we have an obligation, both at the personal level, at the family level, and at the world level, or, or whatever vocation, whatever that is for you, at that level, to set in place values and fight for values that reflect God's heart so people can be safe, okay? So personal is this. This is how I live my life to the measure that I obey the Lord. The Lord says, if you love me, you'll obey me, okay? How many of you are obeying perfectly yet? Yeah, okay, me neither, right? I mean, I do really good most days, but some days, you know, you have a moment. And you're like, ooh, that was a bigger draw on my spirit than I realized, and I ran out of capacity and snapped, right? So there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ, so we go to the throne of grace and receive mercy. I messed up. We receive grace. Thank you for more of you so that I can be more like you. In Jesus' name, we go back at it, right? We're praying in the spirit this time. Oh, I'm going to pray in the spirit a little more because I realize in this situation, I don't have the grace I need to adequately function or to function like Christ functions in this moment. Okay. At the family level, we are responsible to disciple our children. My niece said to my sister, Mom, if you wanted me to believe in God, you should have told me 10 years ago because my sister just got saved. She's actually right. And my sister's so wise. She said, you know, Sophia, you're right. But I hope 
I hope one day that you'll see what I see and that you'll come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because I'd love to be with you for an eternity. And we can't help, well, let's say it this way. We Don't beat yourself up about when you came to the Lord. It doesn't, it's not something that is unattainable or un, not doable for God. With God, all things are possible, amen? So it's never too late for your children to get saved. It's never too late for your parents to get saved. It's never too late for your husband, your wife, your spouse to get saved. It's possible, okay? But it does take more work because now your values are aligned with who God says you are. You're starting to shift and you're starting to change. Did, how many of you all saw that meme I put on Facebook about with the caterpillar sitting at the table and the butterfly on the other side and the caterpillar says to the butterfly while they're drinking coffee, you've changed. And the butterfly goes, flaps its wings, and is like, well, yeah, we're supposed to, Right? I'm not a miserable little worm anymore that just follows people around the rim of the bucket. If you've heard that story about the butterflies and the caterpillars. Okay, I actually do what God tells me to do. I went through the fight and the battle to get out of my cocoon to be transformed. I went into the hidden place and allowed him to liquefy me and make me feel, Go went through that process of feeling like I'm absolutely nothing and waited on him until he gave me the grace and the power to come out looking like something I don't even recognize and going, man, this was definitely God because this is not who I was five years ago. Amen? And I look around the room and I see a lot of you and I'm like, man, God has done an awesome work in you. An awesome work in you. And I just want to pause real quick. When I first got saved, um, because I, I miss Jamar. I've been missing Jamar this week. Because the struggle is real, we'll quote him, okay? I, uh, I used to have to write down and put on my fridge um, praises and wins so that I could celebrate the areas where God grew me. Because the war was so intense. Because I came out of um, parenting that didn't really have a code. It was kind of no holds bar. We can do whatever. So I had to write down for myself a list of, I'm celebrating that I didn't yell at my husband today. I'm celebrating that I spoke with kindness to the annoying telemarketer that would not stop talking to me after I told him three times I wanted to hang up. No offense, Brent. I love you. You're the best telemarketer in the world. I'm celebrating today that I spent 30 minutes in my devotion time when I never used to start my day with God, and I've done it every day this week right? I had to write those things down. And I just want to encourage you, if you're at a place where the enemy is kind of coming at you, take a minute and write a list of the wins. Look at where you were three, four years ago, even two years ago, and say, Holy Spirit, would you show me things that I can celebrate about wins, things you see in me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, 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 oh. He's very excited to tell you what those are. Because God isn't looking down at you saying, look at how far you, yet, you have to go yet. Anytime you hear that and you feel like the enemy's on your backside, it is the enemy. Okay? If you're feeling condemned or frustrated or overwhelmed, like you're not doing good enough, that's the enemy. God's a good father. He's a good, good daddy, right? So ask Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what? Can I celebrate? What is a change I can celebrate? And then write that down and you put it up on your fridge or mirror, whatever that is for you, where you're going to see it every week and you can encourage yourself in the Lord. David had to encourage himself in the Lord. When we're learning to battle, the Israelites didn't want to battle. Part of the battle is taking the time to encourage yourself in the Lord. Does everyone, I don't know if you all journal, but I journal. 
I am a ferocious, ridiculous journaler. If you looked at my bookshelf, one half of one whole row is all journals, all the way back to from 2011 and 10. Okay, because I realized I had to encourage myself in the Lord. Nobody was going to do it for me. When I was home and it was just me and I'm homeschooling my kids, okay, coming from completely ungodly lifestyle to homeschooling your children is like, somebody please run me over with a Mac Chuck. I had absolutely no patience, none. And the Lord said, you're going to homeschool your kids. I thought, you got to be kidding me. They're not going to survive this. Like, that's the thoughts that were in my head. I really thought that they are not going to live through this experience. But day by day, as I was faithful in the little things, to read my word every day, to pray every time I felt frustrated, to, to talk to the Lord and to apologize and ask the kids for forgiveness and to practice humility over and over and over again with them, I grew. And they grew to forgive me a lot. <laughs> but they, it was beautiful in the sense that they learned that people are human. That's what my kids got to see. Real people have real problems that a real God can always fix. And it's okay. We talk about that a lot here. It doesn't matter how broke somebody is. This generation that's coming in out of witchcraft, Harry Potter, incantations, voodoo, all the stuff, Santeria that's going on, libations being poured out, they're coming with some demonic mess. And there is nothing that God cannot fix. We do not have to be intimidated by that. We do not have to be intimidated by that. But we do have to be patient. We have to be patient. So you've got these three levels, personal relationship and your walk, this family dynamic, and you have to model discipleship with your children. And then this, um, how your sphere, whatever that is, influences the world. There's more responsibility with each new level. There's more responsibility in the family dynamic, right? You've got children that are dependent on you. You have to provide the income. You have to be the teacher. You have to do the research when you don't know what the answer is. You have to be patient. You're usually the first one up and the last one to go to bed. Not only do you have to do all that, but you have to set the example because they're actually, most things are caught by people watching others. Lyra said something that really encouraged me this year. She said, I was watching you this year, and it really impacted my life. Now, I've been at this love walk a long time. <laughs> so there's an ease and a grace on it that I didn't have 10 years ago. But kids, too, they watch the world. When we're at work, when we're doing things and we're out and about, people are watching you. When you say, I'm a Christian, they're watching you. How do they talk? How do they treat the person, and this is an area where I'm still growing, that is taking 4,000 years to turn a red light? Okay, Jesus, I beg of you, I really want to cut through the parking lot, right? And I'm having this battle. There's still a battle that goes on, okay, because I'm fine here. Like, I'm meant to move things, and I want to shun that out of that car right out of there. Translate it, Lord, you know? But it's... <laughs> Right, how are they looking at how do we respond? You know, so if I've got my mom in the car, my mouth's gonna be shut. If I've got my little sister in the car, I'm not saying nothing. It's so good to see you. Yeah, tell me more about that because I think we're gonna be here a while, <laughs> right? So there's more pressure and responsibility, more work necessary, more efforts required. There's a bigger battle, okay? So you've heard it said new, new level, new devil. This is what it's talking about. Okay, 
And it's not anything we have to be afraid of. That's not magnifying the devil and how powerful he is. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying you need to know with each new level, there is more pressure. You're going to have to battle a little more to come into more of Christ. Okay? Okay? So don't be afraid of that battle. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. There's more outside pressure. So at that third level especially, you, at the family dynamic, if you've kind of hit the family dynamic and you're there, you understand the pressure that comes from the kids, the pressure that comes from the spouse, right, and how that can put a real draw on Christ in you. But when you get into a leadership role, okay, in the scripturally, the Lord tells us that the greatest among us is the what? Servant of all. So every leadership role, whether in the church or in the world that we hold, we are there to serve. It is not a triangle top down. We are the boss. We are here to show you how life should be done and you need to get your life together. It's opposite. Okay, Christ is the foundation, right? And then we build everything on top of him and we serve everyone else to help them fulfill who it is they're called to be. But that pressure, especially in the place of vocation, the weight and the attacks that come, it far surpasses the familial level. I'll just say that. Okay? That's why we're seeing what we're seeing in the nation right now with this media. The enemy is mad. He does not want a moral standard set up in this nation. Why? Because it'll make it so that he can't kill babies and cut off entire legacies of generations. It will make it so that he cannot keep people drugged and, and quiet and silent and not fulfilling their destiny. It will make it so that individuals maybe who are deceived um, in, the mind, in the realities of their sexuality won't feel as comfortable running in that direction. Because there's a moral standard that says, honey, we love you, but that's not God's best for you. That's not God's best for you. So personal sin, okay, you go back to level one. Personal sin just affects you. No big deal. What does it matter, right? Well, if I smoke a little reefer, it just affects me. Nobody else knows. Well, I'll tell you this. When you're in a car and you're smoking, it affects the person behind you. I'm pretty sure three days a week I have a contact buzz from driving around Lansing and getting the cloud from the person in front of me coming through the doors, and their windows are not down. So I'm thinking, dear Jesus, whatever. The Lord's got me covered. But in a sense... It doesn't just affect you, okay? So I want to take that back. Holy Spirit just said, no, that's not true. When you don't fulfill your destiny, it affects the entire world. The world is waiting for you to become who it is God has called and created you to be. And when you're not fully you, when you're not fully alive, when you're not walking in the fullness of your destiny, the entire world suffers because your voice is missing. The beauty and the glory, just like that, phrase Lyra was singing about earlier, the stars have a glory, or Brent was saying earlier, the sun has a glory, the moon has a glory. You have a glory that you carry. Each star has a different glory. Each person has a different glory. And when you're not shining, we miss you. We miss you. Amen? All right. So your personal sin affects you, but it also affects the beauty of the world. 
okay, around us because you're not shining. Personal sin in a family affects your spouse all of, and all of your children, okay? So you'll notice every level we go up, the weaker our foundation or the stronger our foundation, the more impact we have. So if you've got a really strong personal relationship, your life is good. Righteousness, peace, and joy, life is good, right? People are like, I want to be like you when I grow up. Yes, I've said that to a couple people this year. I want to be like you when I grow up, 90-year-old, joy-filled woman of God. When you have a strong foundation in Christ, it affects your family, okay, your spouse. If a husband is laying down his life for his wife like Christ did for the church, I'll tell you there's not a woman in the world that wouldn't die for you, literally. That's what we're made to do. They wouldn't do anything, anything you asked of her because that's what we're made to do. If the wife is loving her husband, honoring her husband, being respectful to her husband, there isn't anything that man won't do for you. Usually when honor and respect are there, the husband's like, what you need, babe? <laughs> I got <gotcha>. you. <laughs> right? So if we're strong personally, it affects our entire family. Our children get discipled. So then your legacy of Christ in you into the measure of maturity you come goes to your children and then to your children's children. And if you live a long, healthy life and a blessed life, like the word says we're called to do, to your children's children's children. And you have three, four generations that you get to sow into. Come on, somebody. What an honor. What an honor. Four generations deep. And if your walk is strong on the third level in your vocation, you change entire businesses. You change entire nonprofits. You can change an entire city. And I'm speaking from personal experience. I didn't think we were going to be able to change the city by doing a single event multiple years in a row, love my city. I just knew God said to do it over and over and over again until it became part of our value system in Lansing. And now you see love Lansing all over this city. Love has become such an integral part of who we are here in Lansing that even the weed companies are doing billboards. Did you see them? We'd love to see you. I laughed out loud when I drove by it the other day. I said, well, it's caught fire, Lord. That's all right, because they're getting it, right? That's exciting to me. So all that to say, to the, these three levels that test our maturity, you're really legislating morality in your own life, in your personal life. Then you're setting a value system for your family, and you're saying this is the moral code by which we'll live, right? Right and wrong. But for the good or for the bad, you get to choose. And then in your place of vocation or your influence in the community, you're doing the same thing. Everything you say yes to or lean your yes toward or support, you're saying, this is the moral code I'm helping to set for the nation. And honestly, level three is the furthest from us, but it's one of the most important. 
because it's going to affect the entire neighborhood. It's going to affect the entire business. It's going to affect the entire city. It's going to affect the entire nation. And we haven't been trained well. So I do want to apologize on behalf of pastors and leaders because we have not trained you well to do this. And we have participated in division and a political spirit and our personal preferences. And we have not called the church back to the word of God, which is really what I feel like Father God is saying. He's saying, you want to know what a fact checker is? This is your fact checker right here. You want to know how we should operate in a personal level? This is your fact checker. You want to know how we operate in our family? This is your fact checker. It doesn't have to be perfect, but to the best of your ability, every opportunity you get, fact check and release his glory. You want to know how to change the world? This is your fact checker. And it seems contrite to say that, but it's so, so true. I didn't think I'd be where I'd be and see and love my city all over the murals in Lansing, Michigan. But it was one step of obedience at a time. And I'll tell you what, there were a lot of conversations at that third level that I had to have where the devil was raging in my face saying no. And I would have to find a measure of self-control and grace to not give in to the pressure so that God could be glorified. And I had to say yes to a battle so that his value and his moral code could be set so that an entire city can enjoy this culture of love. Does that make sense? And you're called to do the same. All right. So with that said, is that helpful, you guys? Okay, I know it's a lot to take in. I kind of went slow on purpose. I normally talk very quickly, but I was going slow on purpose because that's a new concept that the church hasn't really taught well. All right, so we talked about this in Timothy, that this, the law is for the lawless, okay? So we create values, policies, and laws, either at the personal level, the family level, or that sphere level, wherever your sphere of influence is, okay, that maintain morality aligned with God's heart for s because, and I'll tell you why, number one, it convicts the godless. And without conviction, they're not going to repent and know that they even need help. I mean, there were years I was just going on and on thinking, this is a great life, this is how we live life, whatever. And then I read the Ten Commandments, I was like, whoa, I don't even come close. But without conviction, we don't repent. We don't even realize there's a problem. Number two, it sets a standard of morality for those who don't have one. Okay, so it says, okay, this far, no more. It sets a boundary in, in either your personal life or in your family or at your, in your sphere of influence. It says, you know, there's a lot of liberty here. There's a lot of freedom here. But these are the things we're not going to tolerate. Not because we don't love you. Not because we don't value you. But because we value everyone, not just you. And when your personal decision crosses this moral boundary, it hurts other people in the community. So we can't allow that. Right? And then number three. It protects the innocent from being maligned by the godless. So we just kind of talked about that, right? So all those other people who um, do have s a certain way of living that, that are innocent and don't want to kind of cross all those boundaries and ways that will hurt other people, it protects them and it keeps them safe because it says to those who do want to cross those boundaries, you can't. 
we love you, but you can't do that here. You can go live somewhere else and do it. You just can't do it here, right? And, and there's places in the world where they can do that. And then number four, it ensures that justice is served. So it's actually love to set, how many, how, well, how many of you had to discipline someone? Anybody ever had to discipline someone? It could be at work, it could be a personal life, it could be a child, okay? It's actually love to discipline. A parent that loves their child disciplines their child. A boss that cares about you will discipline you. A church leader that cares about you is going to tell you the truth and say, no, this is what we need to do, not because I don't love you, but because I do, okay? People that don't love you let you run rampant and do whatever you want. They have no value system in place. There's no, nothing's ever wrong. When that moral standard is set, it ensures that there will be justice when the boundary is crossed, okay? So, like, for example, um, at Cago, we have certain values that the board lives by. There's about nine of them, seven to nine, I can't remember. But anytime one of the board members or one of our organizations crosses that value, we now have permission in love to say, look, you know, this doesn't align with our values. I hear what you're saying. I understand why you're passionate about that. It, it fits your culture or it fits your traditions or it fits this, but that doesn't align with our values. So we're going to have to say no. And then justice is brought, right, that thing's dealt with. And we're saying, you know, we're not going there. We're not going there for the betterment of the community, right? I love this. The goal is this. We're hoping that those that don't know the Lord will come to themselves, that they'll call on his name, and that the Lord will also protect them until they do so. That's the hope, that the moral standards that are set in place, that legislative morality protects these individuals who don't know God until they can get to the place where they can call on him themselves. It's, it's actually love, right? John 6.40 says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that day. So the goal is that, they, that we would all have eternal life. Everyone who looks to Jesus will be saved, right? And if that's true, I think the other side of the coin is when a moral standard's in place, we have to be real careful to not get self-righteous. Those moral standards are put in place out of love. So, for example, in the family setting, um, we had a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And our kids would cross boundaries all the time because every kid in the world does it, right? They don't know. They don't know what they don't know. They come out of the womb not knowing, and it's all about them. It's about me, 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 me. Wait, wait, wait. Give me my bottle, diaper, clothes, food, right? That's just the way they are. They come out. They're born into sin. And that's okay. It's our job to train them and disciple them. It's like the first battle that we'll face outside of ourselves. And it's God's desire, it's the Father's desire that everyone who looks to the Son believes in him shall have eternal life. So the challenge is this, battling in a way that is loving. Battling in a way that helps the opponent or the individual that is not at the same maturity level that we are understand that they are still valued, they are still loved, but that the behavior and or the belief system they're living by is still unacceptable. 
they're free to continue to live that way. They just can't do it in whatever sphere of influence we have or in our family or it, when involved in our personal lives because we have a standard to uphold. Does that make sense? Okay? So it simplifies it a little bit. Um, it simplifies it a little bit. I don't know if you guys remember back in 20... Um, oh, I forgot to change that for you. I'm sorry. That was the right one. Um, back in 2019, the Lord gave me a word about the reckoning. And I was rereading this, and I was like, wow, Lord, this is actually where we're at. It started back in 2018, 2019, and we're seeing it come to full fruition right now. And I think we get nervous sometimes when separations happen, um, as if all hope is lost. The enemy tries to come, and that's false prophet of spiritual Fear tries to come, prophesying spirit of fear tries to come and tell us that all hope is lost. And it's not true. There is a separation happening. I'm just going to read this a little bit, and then we're going to talk about that. Um, let's see, Lord, where do you want to start? The Lord had told me that in 2019, this would be a year and a season of the reckoning. Initially, I was thinking, wow, that does not sound good. Immediately, I knew it was a war word of warning to Christians who are partnering with the world and other non-Christian leaders who are perpetuating evil in our nation. But as I prayed about it, God continued to speak. After hearing the word, I had to do some research. I had to know exactly what does the term reckoning mean. And I learned that reckoning is actually an accounting term. It literally means a settling of accounts, a summing up of a person's opinion or judgment, the avenging or punishment of past mistakes and misdeeds. Contention for one's place on a team. Ooh. So it has this idea of judgment, but it also has this idea of promotion. When one is called to account for specific actions, it can be good, you get promoted, or it can be bad. You're staying where you're at or you get demoted. To pay one's debts or to fulfill one's promises or obligations. And I just want to... Being demoted in a season or promoted in a season is not a bad thing, okay? Tell your neighbor. Say, we've all been demoted. We've all had to go around a mountain more than once sometimes, right? And that's okay. That's okay. It's not a bad thing. It's actually God's love when he holds you in a position for a season to ensure you get the wholeness you need and the glory and the grace you need to fulfill the fullness of your destiny on your life, okay? So I want to encourage you. After reading this definition, my heart was flooded with a plethora of insights from Holy Spirit, including a flash vision of the moment when the finger of God wrote on the wall the Babylonian king, Mene Mene Tekel Perez. In the book of Daniel, chapter 5, the meaning of which Daniel, by the grace of Holy Spirit, interprets as being, God has numbered your days, and the days of your reign have been brought to an end. Tekel means you've been weighed in the scales, and you've been found wanting. Now, the reality is, any of us weighed in the scales apart from Jesus Christ are going to be found wanting. Amen. But the hard part for those that don't know the Lord, and it's actually God's grace to them, is they are weighed in the scales. And when they're found wanting, as a non-believer, there is judgment that comes. And the judgment is actually God's mercy because it's intended to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For those of us that are sons of God, Jesus is still on our side, but he does weigh our fruit in the balance. Okay? How fruitful are we? What does our love walk look like? And when we're weighed in the balance, it's, we're disciplined. Okay? We're not judged, but we're disciplined or promoted, right? 
This was so interesting. Um, I'm going to ask the Lord real quick which part he wants me to say. Nope. All right. So the Lord was basically saying this would, that year would be a year of reckoning. And looking back now and from 2021 to 2019, I feel like it's come to full fruition. Like we've seen a lot of the shakeouts happen. We've even seen it here in our local body. Okay, some decisions were made, some shifts occurred, and um, some people are in process trying to figure out where they want to be with the Lord, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is what it is. The Lord always does a reckoning of accounts before a new era or a new season because he has to test his people to see who is ready to serve him and be a great servant among many and lay down their life for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his will. And he's got to allow us to be tested and really even the ungodly people to be tested so they can see what's really in them versus who they think they are. Sometimes we set ourselves up on a pedestal and we think we're, gosh, I'm a really great person. I'm so nice and I'm so generous and I'm so this and I'm so that. And then your car breaks down and you're like, girl, no, I ain't got no money. You got $25 in your pocket, but you're worried because you got this bill coming, but the Lord told you to give it, but you don't want to give it, Right? Sometimes our fruit is tested when all hell's breaking out against us, when we're in the midst of those battles. Do we still believe what God's word says when the battle is raging around us, right? So these moments of reckoning are vital. The separation has to occur so that God can have his glory and so the church can be properly equipped for whatever era we're coming into. This year, reckoning, the Lord told me, would be one where both those who are in the church and in the world who have compromised, connived, schemed, manipulated, lied, cheated, murdered, and also those who have humbled themselves, been faithful, loving, patient, forgiving, and kind, would experience the following. Number one, they would both experience a settling up of accounts. We're going to settle this matter. It's going to come out where you're at. An exposing process. A person's opinion or judgment, the avenging or punishment of past sins or misdeeds when one is called to account for one's actions. Very literally, in a spiritual sense, for some they will have a negative balance because they've blatantly railed against God and his church or they've compromised with the world, allowing sin to reign in their spheres of influence or to go unchecked. They'll begin to lose their resources, their people, their finances, their favor, their jobs, and their relationships, and we're starting to see this. The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And there are seasons and eras where God transitions it. Those who have exalted righteousness, not compromised the message and continue to serve in love despite of the response of others, they will be entrusted with this provision. Come on, somebody. In our, this moment, in the middle of COVID, we should not be buying a building in, from a practical sense, but God has blessed us, okay? It makes absolutely no sense to the natural mind, but God. That's a sign and a wonder. All the wealth and prosperity that God gives, which is so much more than the money as mentioned above, the first fruits of which have already started to pour in. And if you're seeing them come in, your life right now, you celebrate because this is just the beginning. They'll experience a contention for one's place on a team or an appointment. Anybody kind of been in the balance trying to figure out where your role is? 
in transition, right? We're all experiencing that. We're getting positioned and moved and shifted around a little bit to get ready for the thing it is God's called us to do, this next thing, and that's not a bad thing. Don't be looking back like Lot's wife, worrying about what you did in the past. Lord, what do you have for me now? If you're multiplying, you're moving, and that is a good thing. That is not a bad thing. Okay, the world and our friends and the enemy will try to tell us that we got to stay here. If you're staying here for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and you're not moving, your borders aren't changing, nothing's happening, you're a swamp and you need to get out away from some beasts and do something new, okay? But if you're moving, if you're moving forward, if things are transitioning and changing, it means you did such a good job in the last season that you can shift. You finished what you started, Okay? All right, it means to pay one's debts or fulfill one's promises or obligations. And I, this is interesting. The Lord said in that year, and I think this is relevant now, for this I hear, the Lord will repay every debt you are owed. Come on. Every broken promise that has been withheld. Hey. Every revelation intentionally not shared, every slanderous word that's been spoken against you. The obligations they would not fulfill, the Lord says, I will fulfill myself. Watch and be amazed. I am the Lord. Stop looking to the world, to men for deliverance, protection, and reparations. Remember, I am the Lord your God. Woe, woe, woe to those who have withheld. I freely gave you and you hoarded, the Lord said. I forgave you and like the ungrateful servant, you beat your brothers demanding they pay you back. Repent. Whew, that lights me up still today. That is so relevant even still today, four years later. Wow, three years later. Thank you, Jesus. Whew, there's glory on that. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. While I was a little shaken after hearing this word, my heart was heavy, and I, of course, started to intercede for the body of Christ to repent and shift into more of the fullness of who it was Christ had called him to be. What I love about God is that he is love and he freely always forgives us when we ask him to. And there's still time to repent. We still have a couple months. We still have a couple months to repent. We got till he comes to repent. But I mean to come into this next era and be a part of the blessing. Be a part of the servant team. Be a part of what it is he's doing next to not miss the boat, if you will, proverbially. In Christ, we never have to worry about suffering judgment. Amen. Christ certainly paid the entire price for all of us. However, God is a good father, and he always disciplines his children. In fact, the scripture says if we're not disciplined, we're illegitimate children. Amen. This is the year of the reckoning, but God is still love. Amen. When God disciplines us, and when we legislate morality, it's actually a sign to us when he disciplines us and to those that we set disciplinary measures out for, that we care about them. We care about them so much we're not just going to let our teenage daughter or son run rampant all over the town and do all kinds of crazy stuff. We care about them enough that I'm, when I get home, you know, I'm going to ask my son to discipline himself and help with the chores, you know. We care about them so much that we might say to our children, I want you to wait for that elderly lady and open the door for them and wait till they go in first, right? We care about them so much we're going to teach them about tithing because we want them to be prosperous and successful. And we understand that when we tithe, it protects 
all of our other stuff, right? We care about them so much that we're going to teach them to remain pure, to do their very best to stay pure. And the practical tools and how they can guard themselves so that the enemy can't snare them, right? Don't let a boy put his hand on your knee when you're out at the movies with your friends. Date in groups, practical stuff to guard yourself. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Sometimes we don't want to go to battle, but God says endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Because God is love and God is always good, even when he disciplines us or brings consequences to those who are not yet his children, like when we legislate morality and bring justice, okay? It is because he loves them. I want to be real clear. God is perfectly capable of defending himself. In this story with Daniel, he literally, his physical hand showed up and wrote on the wall. And there are some in our tribe who are panicking right now, thinking God cannot defend himself. And I want to be very clear. Father God is still on the throne, and he is about to defend himself. He has no problem doing that. But more than that, more than writing the perceived moral wrongs in the nation. He's concerned about the souls of those individuals. Apostle Nesbitt, when we went um, to D.C., he has a First Nations uh, father. He calls him his father in the Lord, Jim Chosen. And Jim... Quite frankly, James Nesbitt had been writing some very strong prayers, decreeing and declaring judgment and what was to come and what was going on. And his spiritual father corrected him. He said, James, yes, God will judge this, but he's perfectly capable of defending himself. He said, our job is to pray for mercy and for grace. And every opportunity, every potential opportunity for those individuals to come internally in their personal lives to the moral standard of having Christ in them so that they can be made whole and be with us forever. And he said it changed the whole 21 days because he had a whole different plan. And that's why we prayed those simple prayers, light, 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 glory, 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 grace, grace, grace. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Do you ever feel like God's taking a sweet time in the by and by? And you're like, Lord. <laughs> okay, journaling helps with that too. I'll give you another tidbit, okay? Writing those things in the fridge really helped me. Journaling really helped me. But in one of my journals, I have a journal where I compile all my journals, like the major words that are life-changing kind of stuff, prophetic words and or dreams that I have in like one from all of the others. And in the beginning of one of those, I started a timeline. I eventually had to put it on my computer. But any major mile markers where I'd been praying for something for months or years, I started to put a date and when it shifted. When I began praying and when it shifted. The date, when I began praying, and the date when it shifted. And I went back and I looked at that timeline not too long ago, and I was like, it felt like forever. It felt like a decade on some of these prayers, but it was only like six months or a year. But the battle was raging so strong, I felt like it was taking forever. Does that make sense? 
So something that might be helpful for you. Um, it just kept my life in perspective. I think I've got 10 or 15 years now looking back over that timeline, and I watch as I continue to seek the Lord's face how faithful he was to promote me and to promote me and to promote me and to promote me and to promote me over and over and over again. And it happened quickly. One year, two years, three years, one year, two years, three years, one year, two years, three years. And the favor and the grace and the prosperity and the changes really in my own life that align with the word simply because I took it day by day. Okay? I hope that's helpful. So our job and kind of the whole if you were to boil this down into one thing, you are a plumb line. Christ in you, and to the measure you allow Christ to be formed in you, is a plumb line for you in your personal life. It's a plumb line for those in your family, and it's a plumb line for whatever community you have an influence in, whether that's your neighborhood, your vocation, the nation, the city. You are a plumb line. And when the plumb line of Christ is set in us, to whatever measure it's set in us, to that measure, we are called to bring it to those around us, whether that's in our family, in our community, in our nation. We coach others, we train others, we teach them to war and to hold their ground. And then God disciplines, okay? God disciplines them when they compromise. We don't have to worry about that. We stand our ground, we do our battle, and we let the Lord win. Amen? One of my favorite parts when we were in D.C. was this. One of the guys in the middle of the Memphis day when James had gone, and I'm about to wrap up. I see Brent looking at the clock over there. Um, one of the days when we were ready to, when uh, James had taken off, I had kind of the freedom and the liberty to do some things. Glory dust literally had fallen on this 80-year-old woman. She popped up out of her seat and kind of hollered in the Lord, and um, the Lord was showing her something. She spoke a verse. Well, glory dust fell all over. There's gold dust all over her arms, all over her hands. And we got into prayer. We had done some reconciliation, some dealing with some racism and the roots of racism in our nation. And we were talking about division and praying about the division in the nation and how hurtful it was. There was one particular woman that really had a hard time. And her apostle was in the room, and he said... Um, she just wants you to give a bullet point, like move on. And this woman was really hurting, African-American woman. And uh, Holy Spirit's like, don't dishonor the apostle. Let it go down a couple people. But once it hit that woman, the older lady got the glory dust and all that happened. She popped up out her seat and ran around the plumb line. Holy Spirit said, go back to that young lady. And you tell her that if you're hurting, we're all hurting. And really, that's what's going on in our nation right now. There are people that are hurting, and if they're hurting, we're all hurting. And we need to take the time to listen to one another. We need to take the time to coach. We need to take the time to train. We need to take the time to disciple. We need to take the time to love. And then this Caucasian guy all the way in the back of the room against the wall jumps up after we do this racial reconciliation piece dealing with the roots of racism and repentance piece of everybody repenting to everybody, everybody's crying, there's glory dust over people on the floor rolling, laughing, getting deliverance, whatever. And he pops up out of his seat and he hollers, victory is the only outcome. 
victory is the only outcome. And the room went nuts. It was like the glory of God hit that room. And we knew that we knew that we knew it was a word from the Lord. That what was happening in our nation was not a picture of how it was always going to be. It was a season that we simply needed to battle through to finish strong and to see God glorified in this hour. And for those of you that don't know, this comes from Winston Churchill. That's right, D-Day, okay? And they were under attack at that time, and they were being bombed at that time, and he's down at the train station, and he just goes like this. Victory is the only outcome. It looked like everything around them was completely going to be destroyed and stolen from them. The Nazis were making their way around. They were taking over countries. Nobody wanted to join in the fight, but he just stared the devil in the eye and went like this. Victory is the only outcome. And that is where we're at in our nation. That is where we're at in our nation. Victory is the only outcome because greater is he that is in you and greater is he that is in me than he who's in the world. And to the measure that we're willing to live our personal lives on fire for Jesus and love and listen to one another, and to the measure we're willing to disciple our families, and to the measure we're willing to change the cultures where God has given us influence is the measure to which this entire nation will shift. You have a role to play. I have a role to play. And we literally are changing the world one act of obedience at a time. We say the scripture all the time. And we who with unveiled faces, we got to get real. That woman in that meeting, she was willing to be real. Look, I'm hurting. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And I feel unloved. And someone said, okay, we want to hear your heart. We want to go through this pain with you. We want to take a moment and pause and have the awkward, work through this awkwardness. But she had to unveil herself. And then I had to unveil myself. Vulnerability, the value of vulnerability. If we as a people understood the power in speaking the truth in love and being honest about where we're at and the potential in those moments to see God come in like a mighty rushing river and clean everything up and uh, cause it to align with his kingdom, we would be vulnerable more often because victory is the only outcome. Because from the moment the word of God leaves Jesus' mouth toward us, the moment we get a rhema, it is finished. It is finished. I'm just going to close out with this verse. To somewhere the smell, sweet fragrance of Christ, which exhales unto God, discernible alike. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the latter, we are an aroma wafted from death to death, a fatal odor, the smell of doom to them. To the former, it is an aroma of life to life, a vital fragrance, living and fresh, giving them hope. And who is qualified, fit, and sufficient for these things? Who is able for such a ministry? We are. For we are not like so many, like hucksters making a trade of peddling God's word, shortchanging and adulterating the divine message. 
but like men and women of sincerity and the purest motives, as commissioned and sent by God, and I hear full of his power, we speak his message in Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, in the very sight and the presence of God in every sphere of influence that we have the privilege of walking in. And the world is changed every time you do it. It is absolutely changed. And I just hear a resounding well done. I just hear a resounding well done to the body of Christ. I just hear well done. Well done. You made it through this battle. You didn't quit. Well done. Well done, daughter of God. Well done, son of God. You did not quit and give up. You did not hide in the cave. We're going to shift into the activation portion of the gathering. And I say this every time, but I'm going to say it today because we have some newbies, okay? Activation is the process of making something active or operative. That means that it moves from your head and it takes that couple second journey down to your heart. You're actually living it. You're not just knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, right? It builds up the body. It builds up your spirit man. Revelation, we say. Revelation brings responsibility. Once you know it, now you're responsible for it. Jesus said to the Pharisees, now that you say you know, okay? So when we say we know, we're responsible to live it out. We talk about the fact that spiritual gifts can be taught. That's what we're doing today. They can be caught, which is what happens when your kids and your friends watch you. Or they can be activated by faith, and we're going to activate some by faith today, okay? You decree a thing, and it comes to pass. And then there's a process. Revelation comes through all five senses. You might see something in the spirit. You might hear something audibly. You might have a smell, an aroma that you smell. You might taste something, okay? But interpretation is the key. We need to ask, what is this? Not only what is this, but what do you want me to do with it? What does this mean, and what do you want me to do with it? Okay? So, Jackie, I'm going to ask you to pass out cards to everybody in a pen real quick. Actually, Laura, will you help her too so it can go faster? And I want you to ask Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, show me any cultural or traditional idolatry or political idolatry in my life that you want to deal with. So anything that does not align with your fact checker, with your kingdom, with your ways. Because we've been in the press to follow culture. We've been in the press to follow tradition. We've been in the press to follow a certain kind of political view. Amen? Take a moment and write that down. Holy Spirit, show me any idols in my life, whether they're cultural, traditional, or political. Show me any idols in my life. I just heard this song in the spirit in regards to the idols. The chain, chain, chains, chains of fools. Chain, chain, chains, chains of fools. Okay. 
We all start out as fools until we know what the word says. And it's okay. But once we know, once Holy Spirit shows us, the moment he shows us something, this is the beauty, he gives us the power to overcome it. So whatever that is, write that one down. If you're ready, just say I'm ready. If you need more time, put your hand up. Holy Spirit, show me any and all, or any, cultural, traditional, or political idols in my life. Places in my life where I say my culture is more important than your word. Places in my life where I say my traditions are more important than your word. Places in my life where I say my political beliefs are more important than your word. Any one of those. It doesn't have to be all of them. Whatever he shows you. If you need more time, say I'm ready. Okay. Now ask Holy Spirit for each word that he showed you or each thing that he showed you, each idol he showed you, in what what was the root? When did that become, what was the root? Holy Spirit, what was the root? When did that become, where did it come from? Okay, you may see an experience from when you were a child, someone that told you that, a hurt that you had. Maybe even someone you trust that taught you that. We're going to operate out of Jeremiah 110 now. And if you want to live for Christ, even if your feelings don't feel like it, but in your knower, you know that you want to, but you don't necessarily even know how, just between you and Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, please forgive me for idolizing these things that are on this list. And guess what? He always forgives you when you ask him to. In the fullness of the price is paid for you, and you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And then ask Holy Spirit. This is the second part of Jeremiah 110. Okay, we're going to build and plant. Holy Spirit, please give me a kingdom answer to the need in me that those idols served. What is your kingdom answer? What is the thing you want to put in place of what I was using those idols to, to bring to me. What do you want to give me in place of that thing I just gave you? And if you're seeing something you don't understand or hearing something you don't understand, Holy Spirit, what does that mean? Don't assume you know it gets us in big trouble.
What does that mean? Yeah, some of you getting some right now. What does that mean for me? How does that change my life? Holy Spirit, show me how good my life is going to be when this shift, now that I have that instead of the other. Give me a vision. Give me a picture. Just close your eyes and ask him to show you. What is my life going to look like now that I've shifted, now that you've given me more of you, more of your kingdom? Spirit, I ask you to baptize me with the grace to hate the idols, to hate the sin, and to absolutely have all the power I need to walk in the fullness of what you just gave me, the vision you've just shown me. Fill me with the courage. Fill me with the revelation. Fill me with the love. Fill me with the wisdom. And most of all, fill me with the fear of the Lord to keep me from going back. And then just thank him. Just take a minute and just thank him. Thank you. Just like Joan taught us, right? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you, because you literally are different now. You're literally changed, and you'll never be the same. And you have a new vision you didn't have yesterday for your life that came straight from Father God. And he has good plans for you to prosper you and not harm you, to give you hope. And now you know what that looks like, okay? All right, so if you want... Um, prayer or ministry, Patty, you want to come up here? and um, Patty will be up front. She can do that. Um, I do want to say Sister Donna says she loves you guys. She had a family funeral she had to go to unexpectedly and wishes she could be here today. Um, but if you need prayer, come on down front and we'll pray for you, certainly. Or you can pray for each other too. You know, you don't have to have the professionals do it. So um, we love you. God loves you. And we're not going into fourth Sunday. Is that correct, Laura? Right, but what week are we on? Oh, yeah, we're going into February. Okay, so we're good. So there is service next week. That's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> there is no throne room this Tuesday. That's right. Okay, so we'll see you next time. And Brent, you've been doing a fantastic job with throne room. Can we just thank God for him real quickly, you guys? He's been doing awesome. Yeah, it's been really good. And Lyra, I want to honor Lyra. Can we thank God for Lyra, too? She totally held down the fort. Mm -hmm. You guys have been awesome. Yes, please eat the snacks. Thank you for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what He wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are possible. So keep dreaming, keep praying, and simply obey. Because God is good, and He has good plans for you. 
You can subscribe to our blogs, learn about our speakers, and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city, your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled Listener Support on every podcast. Until next time, we thank you, we love you, have a blessed day.